You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Olympic gold medalists Simone Biles, Ali Raisman, and Michaela Maroney are among the 90 women who are seeking more than $1 billion from the FBI for failing to stop disgraced sports doctor Larry Nasser from sexually assaulting them when the agency first received allegations against him. Here's Biles testifying at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing in September. In reviewing the OIG's report, it truly feels like the FBI turned a blind eye to us and went out of its way to help protect USAG and USOPC. A message needs to be sent. If you allow a predator to harm children, the consequences will be swift and severe. Enough is enough. I will close with one final thought. The scars of this horrific abuse continue to live with all of us. Joining me is Regina Calcaterra of Calcaterra Pollock. Regina, did these gymnasts file a lawsuit here? It's not necessarily a lawsuit that was filed. What was uh, significantly filed were claims against the federal government under the Federal Tort Claims Act. And if there is a claim to be brought against the federal government, you first have to actually file a claim and fill out documents and submit it to the federal agency for them to consider what it is that you're asking for. So what the case is about is the gymnasts who were actually sexually assaulted by Larry Nasser, the gymnast physician who was their physician at MSU when they were training there, and also for the Olympic team as well. He had been sexually molesting his students for and the athletes for over 30 years. And in July 2015, Stephen Penny, the head of U.S. Gymnastics, actually went to meet with the FBI in their Indianapolis office and advised the FBI that he has three gymnasts who want to come forward and explain to them what has been happening to them by Larry Nasser. They didn't follow up for a few months, so they had a meeting in July 2015, and the first time that the FBI agents actually picked up the phone to speak to one of the gymnasts was on September 2nd, several months later. And a conversation was had with one of the gymnasts, Michaela Maroney, and it lasted for about three hours. 
At the end of the conversation, the agent Abbott said, is that all? Then that day had a discussion with the U.S. Attorney's Office on what to do because they really didn't believe that they had jurisdiction over this particular matter and um, was also concerned that the evidence may not rise to their ability to actually bring federal claims against Nassar. So the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Indiana told them to actually transfer this over to the Lansing Office of the FBI in Michigan. And that never happened. So eight months go by, and the U.S. attorney and U.S. gymnastics doesn't hear anything. There's no follow-up. So then what they did is they went to another FBI office. They went to the Los Angeles office and shared the same fact pattern with them as well. There was an investigation, but the Los Angeles office also arrived at the same conclusion that the Indianapolis office has, is that they weren't so sure that they had enough evidence actually to bring a federal case against him based upon the sexual assault. And again, they were supposed to advise the local authorities because what both offices actually agreed to when they had these discussions, and this is what came out in the report that was issued by the inspector general of the FBI, is they both realized that this really should be dealt with by state or local authorities. So neither did the Los Angeles office or the Indianapolis office ever contact the attorney general in the state of Texas where this was happening by Nassar or in the state of Michigan as well, or any local authorities after that. And it was not until the MSU campus police got a tip that a 16-year-old boy was assaulted by Nassar that they issued a subpoena and they went into Nassar's house to get some information. And then after that, the local press picked it up. And when the local press picked it up, then the local FBI office in Lansing started taking a look at it. And that wasn't until about May 2016. So... It's confirmed in the inspector general's report. There's no dispute that the FBI agents knew in 2015 that Nasser was accused of assaulting gymnasts, but failed to act, leaving him to continue the sexual assaults. So U.S. gymnastics actually went to the FBI in July 2015, and not until May 2016 did the FBI actually get involved, the local FBI. So between that time, some of the women that he was already assaulting he continued to assault. And also during that time, he assaulted women that he didn't assault before. And there were 70 survivors of his sexual assault during that window of time that could have been prevented if the FBI actually stepped in, you know, acted properly, documented it, passed the investigation off to the local office in Lansing, and did whatever they possibly could to mitigate anyone else being assaulted by him. Because at the time that the U.S. gymnastics actually learned of this and went to the FBI, they fired him. But he also was working with the local high school, another local gymnastic team. He also worked at the Bella Caroli camp down in Texas. And so he was continuing some of his work there. So there was additional victims, they'll pray basically, that he was finding. But if the FBI actually acted properly, they could have mitigated this and prevented this from happening. So within the past year, you had a lot of the gymnasts, very high profile, like Simone Biles and many others, that testified before Congress and told them about what their experiences were and what the faults of the FBI was and the fault of the U.S. gymnastics team as well and what they should have done because there was also a lot of ethical lapses between the FBI and the U.S. Olympic team. But during this testimony and at this particular hearing, Christopher Ray, who's actually heads up the FBI, took responsibility. And it is extraordinary for any law enforcement government executive to admit fault or admit liability, or let alone describe the conduct of an employee as a gross misconduct. And he apologized to them. 
So you have the statement of this federal law enforcement officer taking responsibility for the malfeasance of his employees. And in the meantime, what had transpired is the inspector general of the FBI actually did his own investigation. And he disclosed in this investigation, in this report, that two of the agents had lied, didn't properly follow up, didn't document, didn't try to mitigate it. And in fact, that they had lied to the FBI as well. And um, the two agents were lying to those who were actually interviewing him. And one of the agents, Agent Abbott, while he was meeting with Stephen Penny, who had a USA Gymnastics, Stephen Penny had expressed to him that he was concerned that there was going to be a lot of blowback to him based upon these sexual assaults. And Abbott told him, don't worry about it. You know, I'll have the FBI say something positive about you, basically implying that, that you came forward and you tried to help out. And in the meantime, while they're having this discussion, Abbott and Penny are talking about a job to be the head of security for the U.S. Olympic Committee. And then Penny's going to put in a good word for him. So then you have an agent who actually has a different priority. And the priority is not to, you know, bring light to the fact that these girls were sexually assaulted, but cover it up to protect the head of the U.S. gymnastics so this agent could possibly be the head of security for the U.S. Olympic Committee. So this is what was disclosed in the report. What I wanted to ask you before you go any further is, since this is a claim filed under the Federal Tort Claims Act, what happens next? What happens next is once they file the claim, and in order to file a claim, they have to file it within, you know, two years of when they were injured or if, if there was some new information that came out. So recently the report was disclosed and the FBI said that they were, were not going to prosecute the two agents. But what you, they need to do is they basically need to file a form with the federal government, say what their damages are, and which we know that they're claiming a billion dollars, but I think they divided it up amongst the different gymnasts for about $50 million each. They have to prove what their damages are submit that documentation. And the FBI has a few options. The first option is that they could settle the case. They could sit down and have a discussion with them, which quite frankly, ethically and morally, that is what they should be doing because you already had the executive take responsibility. Or they could deny the claim. And if they deny the claim, then lawsuits can actually be filed. But when those lawsuits are filed, they're actually filed before district court. But with all the evidence that the FBI has compiled and the culpability that they have, and based upon what, what's in the Federal Tort Claims Act, is really in their best interest to sit down and have a discussion. The billion-dollar request, do you think that that's sort of over the top? Well, what the Federal Tort Claims Act requires is that the first time you put in the claim, whatever number you put there, you can't come back and increase that ever. So what they're trying to do is put in the maximum that they actually believe, but understanding that they're probably going to negotiate backwards because each individual claimant has to prove damages. And those damages are based upon the state where they were assaulted and what those state laws are related to, um, you know, compensatory damages, because they won't get punitive damages under the act. They won't get prejudgment interest. But if a state law where they were assaulted allows them to get compensatory damages, they could get that. So that's what they're going to be relying upon. So the $50 million per athlete is pretty high, but they needed to do that just to insulate themselves as they're negotiating backwards. If this were a court case, it doesn't seem like there's even any discovery or investigation needed here. It's all been done. Yes, that is why morally and ethically the FBI should sit down and have a conversation and they should not continue having these young women being traumatized again. 
And there is several hundred million dollars that is set aside every single year in Congress for the Judgment Act. And they pay out about over $300 million a year. There is already a pot of money that is set aside for judgments that are against the United States government. So this isn't, you know, an extraordinary claim that they brought. The number is high, but that number is going to be whittled down. Who makes the decision about settling the case? It could either be the DOJ with the FBI, and then if the case goes to court, it goes to uh, district court and it's a bench trial. So it's either going to be a federal district judge or it's going to be the FBI and DOJ. Do you remember another case where, you know, the FBI was sued for so much money? This seems like it's extraordinary. There have been other cases that have been brought in the past against the, um, not necessarily the FBI, but, you know, other government agencies. But the one that was brought against the FBI, there was a $100 million settlement. And this was a case where the FBI was, you know, it was egregious government misconduct that actually resulted in wrongful incarceration of several men who were falsely accused of participating in the grizzly gang slaying. And that was $100 million. As far as claims that came out of this particular act, that's one of the highest recoveries. Let's just say the FBI decides it's not going to settle. Is there any kind of defense the FBI could interpose outside of the facts of the case? What the Federal Tort Claim Act is, it waives immunity in this particular situation. But what they can do is argue, you know, a series of things. One is, you know, this conduct um, that will uh, allow a plaintiff to actually sue under this particular act, you know, has to be a government employee, which these two agents particularly, you know, are. But they also would have had to perform the act that they performed within the scope of their duties. And, And if they did, because they did, it was their duty to either do this or not do this. But so their omission of not passing on to the local office that these assaults were going on is an omission. It is within the scope of their duty. But there's an exception to that called a discretionary clause. So if these agents had discretion not to pass it on or not to bring, you know, a federal action against them, that is what the FBI could argue, is that they, they had discretion, you know, not to prosecute federal claims, both in the Los Angeles office and the and Indianapolis office, because they didn't believe that the allegation rose to a federal case. That is the part that they may argue about discretion. But the fact that they, they lied and they did not pass, um, do anything to mitigate or contact local authorities when they were told to do so is what the plaintiffs could argue back. But so there is that discretionary exception. And that exception is the most litigated defense by the federal government and used in these types of cases. As you mentioned, FBI Director Christopher Wray acknowledged that, quote, people at the FBI had their own chance to stop this monster back in 2015 and failed. And considering the publicity that this has gotten and considering the fact that you have the guilty pleas by Nasser, you have the IG's report, it seems like it will be a case that's settled. I hope so. And it should be. Because they're beyond the, beyond the um, discretionary exception, that is their only defense. And with all this evidence, like you said, that is out there, it's going to be very difficult for them to actually litigate this court, this case in court. So it's best for them to settle and settle now. And the parties have to be flexible. You know, the plaintiffs will have to be flexible as far as, you know, what their damages are, because they still have to prove what their damages are. There are loss of scholarships. There are loss of, um, you know, some of them left, left college. There's the trauma and the emotional distress. 
Um, so they have to be flexible with coming down with that number. And I think if they sit down and um, they could probably hash out a settlement within a few months for each one of them because me, there's, there's nothing else to defend. Yeah, so let me ask you this. Suppose they can't reach a number. Could they go to trial just on the damages portion? They would. They, if, if they can't reach a number, then they have to file a case after 60 days when – um, within 60 days of when it is that there's some kind of an impasse or the federal government, you know, denies what it is that they're asking. But they they can go to court on, on damages. Thanks so much, Regina. That's Regina Calcaterra of Calcaterra Pollock. Similar failures by federal law enforcers have led to major settlements, including $127.5 million for families of those killed or injured in 2018 at Florida's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. There, the FBI received a tip about five weeks before, but never forwarded the tip to the South Florida office. The Supreme Court has further weakened a doctrine meant to hold federal law enforcement and other officials accountable for violating constitutional rights. In a 6-3 decision, the justices would not allow a Washington state innkeeper's excessive force claims against a U.S. Border Patrol agent to go forward. The court has consistently been narrowing what's referred to as a Bivens action, which allows citizens to sue federal officers who violate their constitutional rights for damages. In the majority opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas said the court has declined 11 times to extend Bivens, but stopped short of overturning the 50-year-old precedent. The split was down ideological lines And Justice Sonia Sotomayor, joined by Justices Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan, said in dissent that the ruling closes the door to Bivens suits by many who will suffer serious constitutional violations at the hands of federal agents. Joining me is former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. Tell us what happened here, you know, the facts of the case. So a fascinating set of facts. There's a a guy named Boulay lives in Washington State, right on the U.S.-Canadian border. And he operates a little bed and breakfast there that he famously calls Smugglers Inn. And not surprisingly, that got the attention of the Border Patrol, which was watching him and working with him over the years. He, in fact, claimed to be cooperating with them as some of his guests would be turned into Border Patrol. And um, on one occasion, he notified the Border Patrol that he had a, a visitor coming. Border Patrol... Agent Egbert, Eric Egbert, responded, pulled the the guest out of the van as he pulled up, and Boulay came out and, let's just say, invited the agents to leave uh, private property, uh, according to his complaint filed in federal court against the agent. Uh, The agent um, didn't like this and wound up throwing Boulay onto the ground, assaulted him, used excessive force. And then secondly, um, when... uh, Boulay complained to the Border Patrol about this behavior, which he had a right to do. The agent um, uh, retaliated by sicking the IRS on him and seeing that other governmental actions occurred unfavorably. So he then was sued in federal court, the agent, individually, in what's called a Bivens action. Um, And that's a 1971 Supreme Court case where the the court said that if um, a federal agent, in this case, um, Narcotics agents violate someone's constitutional rights, Fourth Amendment specifically, uh, that they could sue the agent in federal court for damages. And um, that's what Egbert did. Um, It went 
to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit upheld both of those causes of action. And remember, a cause of action is simply a right to sue someone in federal court. Um, the issue in the Supreme Court was, um, was the, were the courts below right in, in implying, i.e. allowing the plaintiff to proceed uh, with a lawsuit for money damages. And the, the interesting thing, and why this is a significant case, is we have, as you know, a very conservative court, uh, which is strictly applying the, the words of the Constitution. And, and the, the court is saying, look, it's up to Congress. It should be Congress's job to decide who has a valid claim to file a claim against the United States. Good example being a statute called the Federal Tort Claims Act, which allows people run over by mail trucks to sue the government for their damages. And the court here said, look, maybe Egbert uh, did the wrong thing, but it's not up to the courts to decide who gets to file a lawsuit. It's Congress's job, and Congress should weigh the, the costs and the benefit. And for that reason, um, they threw, the, threw the, the plaintiff out of court, saying he had no claim in federal court against the agent. So it's an interesting constitutional issue, which is to say, when can a court... Um, imply a cause of action that is not expressly stated or delineated by some statute. Congress hasn't made this a specific uh, what we call right of action, and that's the issue. So, George, when he filed this, his lawyers must have known this was an uphill battle from the start, right, because the Supreme Court has been limiting Bevin's actions? Yes, since 1971, the Supreme Court granted two other similar Bivens suits, one involving an Eighth Amendment claim of, by a prisoner um, and another one um, on the Fifth Amendment claim. But generally speaking, as the courts set forth Justice Thomas in his opinion, you know, 11 or 12 times where the court has refused to extend Bivens. Um, what's interesting is, the, of course, the plaintiff said, this is a Bivens action. Bivens involved a lawsuit against federal narcotics agents, the precursor to the DEA, and um, for excessive force, Fourth Amendment, and Boule said, I'm, I'm bringing such a claim, only differences against the Border Patrol, but still a federal law enforcement agent. So they felt, I think, pretty confident, and the Ninth Circuit agreed, this is a Bivens action. The Supreme Court, uh, in this case, however, said, nope, not a Bivens action, and uh, we declined to engage in judicial activism and create an implied cause of action for you. So that was the first question the court dealt with is, does this fall squarely within the parameters of Bivens, or is it an extension of Bivens? And if it's an extension of Bivens, then the, the conclusion is a foregone certainty, which is you're out of court. So this was a 6-3 to three decision down ideological lines. In dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said, the court's ruling contravenes precedent. Do you think that it contravenes precedent? Should this case have been within the Bivens precedent? Well, it's far for me to criticize the United States Supreme Court, although I do from <laughs> time to time. Her point, which is a good one, is on the first prong, which is, is this a Bivens action? She said, yes, it is. She said, okay, it's a different context because here it's a different agency, the Border Patrol, rather than federal narcotics agents. But it's also a Fourth Amendment violation, allegedly, uh, for excessive force. And so she said it's squarely within the parameters, the confines of Bivens. Um, and what difference does it make, she asks, whether it's the Border Patrol, ICE, you know, DEA. If it's a federal law enforcement agency, it should be all. And she, of course, pointed out there are 
83 federal law enforcement agencies. It can't be that Bivens is limited to only a federal narcotics agent. So she was right in pointing out that somewhat artificial distinction. But the second question, which is Corp went to great lengths, and Justice Gorsuch, in his concurring opinion, said explicitly, it's really time to overrule Bivens. Bivens is not based upon words in the Constitution. A close or explicit reading would deny the Bivens action, and he basically said, or suggested in his concurring opinion, that it's time to cut all the way, instead of cutting back on Bivens, to cut it out. And this, of course, is what the court is, there are people concerned about the abortion case that the court's going to backtrack on established precedent. So they didn't do it here. So they didn't say Bivens is no longer the law, but what the court clearly said is Bivens will not be extended even to highly analogous situations as, as this case presents. So some say that this decision makes it nearly impossible to hold federal police accountable for excessive force, that it makes it so difficult and almost impossible. Well, it's a valid criticism. But on the other hand, as the court points out, almost all federal agencies have alternative remedies. Maybe those remedies are not as uh, satisfactory to plaintiffs as filing a lawsuit, but you can file it an administrative claim, as he did. He filed a complaint, and the court pointed out that that results in a, a lengthy investigation by the agency, which is charged under the law with holding their agents responsible. So you can file administrative claims against um, the agents, uh, and maybe or maybe not, you could file a lawsuit in state court. But the Supreme Court is yes, making going to make it very difficult in the future to file excessive civil rights claims, excessive force claims against federal officers in federal court that are not exactly parallel, analogous to the Bivens case. Does the Supreme Court's position here seem contrary to the movement in our country today, the movement to hold police more accountable, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, let's just say you're right. This decision is running a contrary direction. It is going to establish hurdles for lawsuits. Now, lawsuits are not the only way of holding these police officers accountable, but lawsuits in federal court on civil rights violations are going to be fewer and farther in between. But again, there are, as the court points out, particularly when Congress, see, Congress passed the Federal Tort Claims Act, and Congress is also responsible for regulating the federal agencies. So the court is really saying, don't look to us if we need to have federal agents more accountable. Well, there's a body called Congress, there's a legislature, and this is their job, and it, this is not the job of the courts to decide. We think the court, Thomas was quite clear, and Gorsuch agreed with him, that look, the legislature is better suited to decide who gets to sue and when and for what violations, and we defer to the legislature. So if you need more enforcement, the court is saying, talk to your congressman. Do these cases, these Bivens actions, usually split along ideological lines? Not previously. No, I don't think so. And I'm, I'm not a constitutional scholar, of course, but I'm, I imagine that most scholars now are looking at this court and saying, this is a new direction for a very conservative court. They have the votes, they have six to three, and um, they are going to look at and question established precedents. And Bivens now is 
per Justice Gorsuch's criticism, I think in play. It could well be that the next case will result in Bivens being excised from the body of constitutional law. And again, remember, this can be overruled, changed by Congress at the, the court's express instruction or invitation. The court is saying, go to Congress. They're in a better position to know and to do the cost-benefit analysis of deciding uh, when to establish a, a judicial cause of action against a, a federal officer. And as far as the retaliation claim where he he sort of ratted the guy out to the FBI, the justices all agreed about that? Yeah, they, they actually all agreed about that. The First Amendment claim, and actually he ratted him out to what we say, the Richard Nixon trick, which was he got the IRS involved. <laughs> to examine his tax returns. Remember when Tricky Dick did that back in the 70s against his political enemies? So that was a wrong, meaning that was not the right thing to do, assuming that the allegations are right. But the court was agreed that that doesn't fit neatly within um, the exception of Bivens. Bivens has only been applied to a Fourth Amendment claim, Fifth Amendment claim, and an Eighth Amendment claim, and there is no case decision that would support a First Amendment claim. The First Amendment claim being that the government can't retaliate against you when you make a complaint or a petition uh, alleging government misconduct. So it seemed that all the justices were in agreement on that. It was the deciding that he didn't have what looks and looked to many, including myself, to be a traditional Bivens claim under the Fourth Amendment when they denied that right. Thanks so much, George. That's former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.